Across the UK, overnights with Martin Kellner. There is a place I'd give the world to see Where the music's softly playing And the rhythm's gently swaying Underneath the stars in a million bars Guitars are softly saying Mexico there we go, Long John Baldry, the highlight of the show every week. Uh, and uh, Mexico is where we're going now, to Campeche in Mexico. And uh, let's say a very good evening to John Bonfilio. Uh, John, thanks uh, ever so much for joining us. Good evening, good evening. He must have died a happy man, Long John Baldry, <laughs> having recorded this amazing song. It's a fantastic song, isn't it? Did, did a lot of other stuff as well, I have to say. No, we can um, forget all that. I think we can scratch that. We can just <laughs> regale in the fact that he, yeah. he recorded this song, which uh, opened, well, not doesn't open, features in your uh, your Saturday morning program. He yes. must be yeah, really proud from the other side. Well, from the other side, indeed. Uh, but the estate of uh, the estate of Long John Baldry will be um, will be enjoying the royalties, if nothing else. So anyway, um, here we go. It's been a, a crazy time at the moment uh, on the in, in Latin America, um, starting with Peru. Um, Forty people, isn't it, killed in protests in Peru? Uh, tell me all about that. Yeah, and if it, if it hadn't been for everything that's taking place in Brazil, Peru would have been all across the headlines in the news media. Mm. But because of everything in Brazil, it's been a little bit quiet. But it's, it's ridiculous because, as you say, 40 people um, killed over the course of the last month, 19 in one day alone a few days ago. And this all goes back to early December, where the, the, pre, the then president, Pedro Castillo, who rec- rec- realized he was about to be impeached. So he tried to dissolve Congress, but then his political allies abandoned him and then, and then actually proceeded with impeaching him anyway and um uh, now regarded as being the shortest coup in history uh, the least uh, long-living dictatorship in history and he's now in pre-trial detention his uh, vice president dina boloate then was one of the people that jumped ship then took over the reins and ever since then kind of almost understandably all of pedro castillo's support which numbers a fervent over 50 percent um, have been taking to the streets, uh, saying that their elected president has been removed illegally, demonstrations across the country, and then the government and the authorities have been in severe pushback, including what I think what, what Amnesty International has been calling state repression, uh, with deaths left, right and centre, to the extent that Peru's attorney general, uh, just in the last few days, has actually launched preliminary gen- a preliminary genocide investigation against the government and 11 inquiries into the 40 uh, civilian deaths and, and these these protests are showing no signs of going away at all and the more that uh, the demonstrations get pushed back the more the demonstrations grow and it's uh, I mean it arguably Peru's biggest crisis for a generation uh, and when we say genocide I mean that normally refers to things like one tribe killing another you know one a sort of tribal thing or in the case of the holocaust uh, you know the nazis killing all the jews what 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 genocide is being referred to here yeah this is it, it's a misuse of the term it, the mm. law is um it's a it's, it's a genocide uh, investigation but yeah it basically means the killing in this context it means or what the attorney general means and what the law means is that the, the deliberately the deliberate killing of a group of people for perhaps race, gender, political reasons. So it's not, it doesn't relate to the sheer number and scale, uh, which you would normally associate with 
within a genocide. It, it relates to the motivation behind it. Right. Okay, no. And in Brazil, meanwhile, um, and when we talked about uh, Lula da Silva, um, who's um, seemed to he seemed to have taken over reasonably bloodlessly, but that wasn't true, was it? Because now, very much like uh, the you know January the sixth or in. Uh, I don't go into some of the six, whatever it was, uh, in America and the uh, Trump supporters protesting and the uh, riots at the Capitol. The same sort of thing's been happening in Brazil uh, with supporters of uh, Bolsonaro. Yeah, it, it really has. And, and, and to everybody uh, who's been following this, a complete surprise. And it seems as though that this, uh, this whatever you want to call it, this in, insurrection in, in Brazil was deliberately left for, for after Lula took power giving Bolsonaro time to get away from Brazil uh, and, and the like, and then for it all to land on, on Lula's doorstep. And whichever way you, you look at it, I mean, Lula either has to you know, pursue uh, the people who drove the insurrection or has to pursue those he perceives to be his political enemies. But for, for this to happen in the first couple of weeks of a presidency and for this to be the most important thing on your entry is, is absolutely huge and something that which you wouldn't wish on anybody. And certainly the government at the moment is trying their best to rapidly and punitively pursue those responsible in order that it doesn't um, happen again. And what, it, what seems to have happened now, or certainly what the government is telling us, is that they believe that the Brasilia, so the capital of Brazil, Brasilia, the authorities there to be complicit. And a lot of the attention at the moment is focusing on this figure, Anderson Torres, who uh, it was Brasilia's security chief, now hanging out uh, in in Miami as well. But the idea is that he, um, yeah, that he he very much was complicit and sort of opened the door, both metaphorically and literally, uh, to uh, to the protesters. So he's now been in, indicted. He says he's going to go back and face um, charges, but but yeah, who, who knows whether that's going to take place or not? And and there's one of the other strange things about this whole. Uh, shindig is how Miami, how Florida keeps featuring so highly in this uh, in this story with Bolsonaro now also holed up in Miami and achieving the sort of a, a strange uh, minor celebrity status where every time he goes out, he's he, people flock to him and, and get him to sign autographs and, and signatures. And so on, adding to the, the idea of Florida being this kind of this almost outcast state in the USA. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, and uh, just uh, on, a, on a sort of lighter note, um, in Bolivia, the state airline has um, enlisted uh, an interspecies communicator. Explain to me what an interspecies communicator is and, and why the Bolivian state airline has uh, recruited one. Well, I think it's a bit harsh, Martin, to say that this is on a lighter <laughs> note. This relates to a, to a cat called Tito, lost in transit. By, uh, by the uh, official state Bolivian airline and is a very serious uh, matter uh, because he's not been found now for a, for a few weeks. And the only way that the, the, the state authorities and the, the, and the BOA, the Bolivian state airline, uh, has decided they can move forward with trying to uh, find this disappeared cat, as you say, is they've con contracted a feline psychic, as you do. Right. Uh, amusingly, he's not working close to where the cat He's working remotely because I guess that's what psychics uh, do. You know, they don't have to be in situ. Yeah, of course they uh, don't. Yeah. 
No, absolutely not. You know, talented psychic can tell us uh, whatever you want, they want to tell us from wherever it is they are in the world. Interestingly, they have told us that they feel Tito's presence. Tito is still alive, but they are unable to tell us exactly where he, uh, where the cat is. And obviously, this the owner of the cat, uh, who is still searching for Tito, uh, is is a little distraught by by proceedings. Um, there is a bigger issue here, which, of course, the state airline of Bolivia has invited ridicule, but it also expands to other state companies in in Bolivia because the socialist government, master socialist movement over since 2006 has generated, has created a huge number of uh, state run companies uh, and also nationalized one company as well. And the accusation goes that they are almost all inefficient unprofitable and being set up for political ends so you've got this um this uh, this cat tito caught in the if you like in the uh, in the veritable eye of the storm um mm. in in a in a much more in a much broader political context uh, relating to what's taking place in bolivia vis-a-vis the whole political project that's taking place there yeah there's a lot of uh, wacky news coming out of uh, latin america at the moment unusually um, unusually Unusually, yes, we don't expect that. And uh, in the middle of all this, there's uh, a lot of conversation going on, uh, and especially after Argentina won the World Cup and everything, as to who is the best coach of a national team. The International Federation of Football History and Statistics, the IFFHS, uh, are um, conducting this debate. Um, so tell me, well, first of all, we'll have a look at some of these coaches um, in that part of the world. But um, obviously, Lionel Scaloni, uh, the youngest coach at the World Cup, just 44 years old, um, he's, well, he's actually not quite as popular as the French coach Didier Deschamps, who um, is 45 years old, so just a year older. But he was, he got more votes, didn't he, than... Uh, did he? Or, yeah, he did. yeah, way, way more votes. It, the, this debate has really kicked off in the last week or so here in Latin America about who the best Latin America coach of the last uh, year is. I'm surprised that you didn't uh, tell us straight off the bat that Lionel Scaloni was formerly of West Ham. That was what I figured you were going to yes, lead he, in with. Well, absolutely. I don't like to uh, <laughs> don't like to go on about it too much. I don't think he was, he wasn't a you know uh, a presence at West Ham for very long. You know, he was, uh, he, he sort of came and went, I think. I'm just trying to think how many matches that he actually played for West Ham. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he was there. I don't think he was there for a huge period of time. But interestingly, and actually when Scaloni came to the, um, uh, to coach the Argentine, uh, men's national football team, most people were completely against his appointment because he came uh, and partly because of his age, but also very little experience. Absolutely. Uh, out of nowhere, and then I mean, one, I think in a way, I think he's a little bit Southgatey um, in in terms of how he has brought a series of sort of almost values and ethics to uh, to his project, and also really uh, the biggest thing which you could perhaps say formally of England, but also of Argentina, is how you bring this group of of talent. Uh, I mean, it, it was never in question how talented. The Argentine or Argentine footballers are, but but trying to bring them together in, with with a shared vision, with a shared project of what it is that they uh, they needed to do has certainly been something which um, which he's been unusually uh, able to able to achieve to the extent that when they lost to Saudi Arabia in the World Cup, you know, perhaps the greatest upset in history, they it was on a 36 game unbeaten run, and, and it's and 
worth remembering also that the year before they won the Copa America for the first time in 28 years and then beat Italy in what is the sort of the the final, you know, the playoff between the European champions and the Copa American champions, 3-0 at Wembley. And then you, you come to, uh, to the World Cup as well. So, I mean, I think certainly in terms of uh, achievements over a two-year period inter- international, I think it's non- unparalleled what Scaloni has been able to achieve with Argentina, as I say. And perhaps the greatest mark is the fact that he's been able to bring all these disparate, hyper-emotional, hyper-talented uh, footballers together pulling in the same direction of course Messi has something to do with that too but it should not be underrated under, understated the effect that Scaloni has had on on the team yeah he had 13 games at West Ham I was just wanting to see how many games he played um, but he did play in the FA Cup final for West Ham in 2006 um, but gave away a goal right near the end, which uh, Stephen Gerrard famously uh, smashed into the back of the net. And we were winning the FA Cup 3-2, and eventually it was a three-all draw, and uh, they won on penalties. So he's not what you'd call a West Ham hero, Lionel Scaloni. Um, and in fact, I'm just looking at one of the West Ham websites here, and it says, uh, from West Ham flop to World Cup glory. So one of many foreign signings at West Ham that's just failed to, um, to I actually won- ignite the team. I wonder what the odds would be on, uh, on Scaloni overtaking, uh, taking over the reins at West Ham uh, once the inevitable happens. I don't think he looks back on his time at West Ham with great, with great fondness. Effect. No, so I, I think it's very unlikely. But we'll see. Uh, we'll see what happens. Um, as always, John, thank you ever so much. Do appreciate it, and we'll we'll talk again next week. No problem. Take care. Good man. Thanks a lot. Um, that's uh, John Bonfilio joining us from uh, Campeche in uh, Mexico.